Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. So maybe you don't know this, but I happen to be a card-carrying member of MUFON. (laughs) Senator McCarthy going to rise from his grave and go after me now? No, but Richard Nixon might want to talk to you about eggnog. Well, okay. Possibility. You thought I'm supposed to be a paragon of scientific UFO research, okay? (laughs) And, well, okay, supposed to be. Anyway, and people like Stan Friedman are part of their crew, one of their regular columnists for their newsletter. And some of our early guests on the show, in fact, some of our best guests have been people who have been... MUFON members, MUFON sure. state I, And by the way, I, I know people are going like, to give me help for laughing like that, but I just know the interactions I've had with certain MUFON operatives have been just absolutely ridiculous. That's why I laugh like that. I'm not saying they're all ridiculous, but I, I don't know that that organization at this point plays the role that perhaps they'd like to. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, you're going to really <laughs> like laugh one, huh? after I tell you about the August 2007 edition of the MUFON UFO Journal. Now, is this covering that event that happened in Colorado recently? No. The little symposium thing? All right. I wish. Are you ready? Yeah, go ahead. Hit me, baby. Okay. The headline. What, you ready for this? Sit down. Yeah, for I'm, this. You I'm, I'm sit down. sitting down. I'm sitting down. Okay. You're going to stand up when you hear the headline. Go ahead. Hit me. Where is the star child from? Oh, for Christ's sakes. And no. guess who wrote the article on page three? Uh, Apple Pie? Close. <laughs> yeah, right. Who? Who? Sean David Morton wrote the article. You wish. With photos by, by Michael. You know who, right? No. What? So, seriously? MUFON gave Lloyd Pie a platform to promote his uh, human mutated skull. Right. Okay. Yeah. So... I take back the apology for the laughter at the beginning when you mentioned MUFON. I said you would definitely <laughs> not be able God. to sit on that apology very long before you'd have well, to just return it. You know, UFO Magazine did the same thing recently, and I and I kind of cringed, and, and I didn't laugh, I just cringed. I think the title on the cover was, Who is the Star Child Dada, or, or who is who's responsible for this monstrosity? I don't know. Well, Gene, given that 90% of the uh, editorial generated around this topic, the topic certainly of UFOs, it's just complete noise. I can't say I'm shocked that MUFON would give this guy a platform to spread this nonsense. I mean, you know, they're, what are, they, are they hurting for stuff? Are they hurting for content? Maybe they should, I don't know, train some of their members to speak Spanish so they can actually tap into the vast world of UFO activity going on that's being reported in South America. I know that's a little, you know, global and everything, but th- this is this is where I, I I get frustrated by the limitations of language and where the hell is that universal translator that all of us hope the internet would provide? Because I haven't seen it yet. But it's actually th- on Captain Kirk's chest. Oh, it's that not. little no, I mean, thing that he wears, you know. No, we expect at this point to be able to like read Spanish pages in English because you'd see that there are some really great UFO resources in the Spanish-speaking world. And I'm not talking about Jaime Mosson, who I'd love to get on the show one day, but I've sent him three emails now and he won't respond, which I think is sad. I think we'd have a really good interview with him, but he won't respond. Meanwhile, there are some excellent Spanish language resources, and very soon we're going to have some of these people on our show to talk about the extensive amount of activity happening just in the Spanish-speaking world. Much less, I mean, when we were talking with James Fox recently about 
the uh, Cometa report from France, the fact that that report doesn't exist in English, is very frustrating that we have these language barriers that are holding back research is really unfortunate. I mean, what, oh, gee, I mean, what would I give for an English version of AJ's UFO magazine? And the thing is, here he is publishing that in Portuguese. So unfortunately, my Spanish doesn't do me much use in trying to read. And so by the way, AJ is fluent in English. He writes pretty well in English. Why can't he come out with maybe a summary of some of the best cases? Well, I think that's just that the guy's already doing a lot of work, as it is. Um, yeah, we should explain, but, by the way, that the offices of the Brazilian UFO magazine were robbed and some of their mm-hmm. key bits of information, a lot of information was stolen from them. Real questionable stuff. Actually, I've written AJ since that happened. I haven't heard back from from saying, hey, listen, how can we help you? But I haven't heard anything back from him. I do. Where did I read that he's going to be at some... Oh, isn't he going to be at that Bay Area UFO banana head thing coming up in September? I think he is, actually. I think he's going to be there for that. And we're going to miss Sean David Morton and Michael of... Well, no, he's not going to be there. No, but Sean David Morton's going to be there, actually, and Lloyd Pye and a bunch of other people that we don't give a damn about. (laughs) (laughs) I can hear. I can see the emails flying in. Well, now. you know what's interesting here. People yeah. were saying when we don't have an introduction to the show, they miss it. When we do have an introduction, why are you ragging on those people? Well, because they deserve to be ragged on. I mean, I certainly had a lot more respect from you, Fawn, until I saw this article, and I wondered, gee, yeah. they must be running out of material real That's fast. Just, it's pretty sad. Let me talk yeah. about another rant, okay? Another rant. All right. All right. Now, mention the guy in Czechoslovakia. I'll hang up my Skype connection. Okay. No, that's not my ramp. I have another rant. He's, okay. he's like gone, but that's a whole other story. Okay. Anyway. Well, in many ways. We don't care. In many matter. ways. Yeah. In many, he was gone. He was gone before he was we started. gone before he, he's here and he's never been yeah. here. Anyway, let's talk about the linchpin of the UFO field, which, of course, is respectability. And yeah. back in the 1950s, for example, Major Donald Kehoe, retired Marine Corps major who flew balloons in the 1920s, and it's not true that he flew the balloon over Roswell. I, I just want to make sure we understand. Boom, 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 boom. Okay. Boom. Anyway, I thought Kehoe was a nice guy. I liked him personally. Okay. So anyway, Kehoe demanded or requested congressional hearings. Remember that famous CBS network show from yeah, that the 1950s? Fox was talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fox was yeah. talking about right. where Kehoe deviated from the script and was cut off. And what did he ask for? He asked for a congressional investigation through right. the years. Look at Gerald Ford when they had the sightings in Michigan in the 1960s. Congressman Ford then asked for congressional <sighs> Forget okay. it, though. It's not going to happen. Okay. Now, okay, we are asking Congress to get to the truth of UFO enigma. We're not but, asking Congress to do this. Who's asking Congress to do this? Stay with me, my friend. Yeah, stay all right, with me. Go ahead. Go ahead. Story comes out this week, dated August 21st, from Gallup. A new Gallup poll finds Congress approval rating the lowest it has been since Gallup first tracked public opinion of Congress with this measure in 1974. Just 18% of Americans approve of the job Congress is doing. 76% disapprove. Now, Mm -hmm. think about this. Even President Bush, who has one of the lowest approval ratings of almost any president in modern history, except perhaps for Richard Nixon before he resigned rather than be impeached. Okay. He has almost twice that rating. Congress is 
given such a low rating, such a high yeah, level you know, of disapproval. Everything is Congress's fault. Yeah, well, right. What, so why do evil we... Democrats in the Congress? Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you. You had to this take way. us to the political place. Now I see the emails coming in, and why are you guys mentioning your politics in the opening show of the show? That's not right. That's just not right. Well, yeah, but hasn't it been one of the linchpins of the UFO field to have an investigation into government secrecy? Well. Why do you want some place that you don't trust? Yeah, but this do is that black investigation. What do you stuff. expect this has them to do? It's got nothing to do with the government. Okay. This is black government, black military stuff. It's got nothing to do with the government. The president of the United States does not have access to this material. We all know that. I saw Independence Day, didn't you? Brent Spires working down there. That's right. He's working down Area 51. That's right. There you go. That's you learn all Steiner. sorts of stuff That's in the right. movies. He doesn't shave very often these days, you know. And, of course, the money, you see what it is, is the yeah. money hasn't been coming in since he stopped playing Data on Star Trek Next Generation because there's no show, there's no movie. The next Star Trek movie is going to be a prequel about the early history of the Federation and Captain Kirk. All right, he's going to sleep now. So, therefore, they hired him to work in Area 51. Forget it. No, no, so, so, so meanwhile, there's no, look, Stephen Bassett can, can howl at the moon. There's not going to be any disclosure from the government about UF, uh, UFO stuff because, A, the government is never going to give this subject any public credence. They're not going to do it. That's career suicide. We know all about that. A. B, it's not like the government are the ones that are actually controlling this information. This is black operation stuff. This is self-contained. This is on a need-to-know basis for crying out loud. Was nobody listening to the James Fox show where he talked about J. Edgar Hoover? J. Edgar Hoover couldn't get his hands on this stuff. If Hoover couldn't get access, that's it. No one's getting access. No one outside of the group handling this information is getting access. And I am convinced... I am convinced that I know why, at this point, the secrecy is what it is about this topic inside of the group that's holding this information. I'm absolutely convinced of this based on the stuff that I've been reading, based on the conversations that we've had over the last you know, more, year and three quarters or year and a half, whatever it's been. I'm it only feels now. like a year and three quarters. Well, there you go. It feels like a few years. But <laughs> no, Gene, seriously, the, 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 the real question that has to be asked here, the key question is, why are the elements of the black government, the, the secret government, that know about this stuff and hold this information, why are they engaged in the secrecy? And, and this is a long topic, obviously. It's a dense topic. We've talked about it a bunch on the show. We talked about the fact that, yes, secrets can be kept. Um, you know, Rich Dolan has some really interesting thoughts about this, but I suspect that the reason is far darker than anything involving the, the idea of you can't let your enemies know what you know. I don't think it's that. I think that when James Fox was on the show and he talked about this little tidbit of information, and I know some people listen to it and say, oh, yeah, that's typical conspiracy stuff. We've heard the statement other times from other people. But the idea that if the truth were revealed, it would topple all organized religion. I think that's the key. I think... There is so much truth to that, Gene, based on what my belief about this is. And again, it's a belief. I can't prove it. I don't have a substantial body of hard evidence to support some of my own conclusions at this point. There's just some conclusions. They're open to modification. I'm willing to change my mind about some of this stuff if certain information becomes available. But 
I'm, I'm convinced that the operatives inside of this covert government or section of the government that hold this data, that have this stuff, because clearly, in my opinion, these guys have, whether it's recovered vehicles, bodies, technology, fill in the blank, um, you know, whether or not Corso took this stuff and did anything with it and seeded it, that I think is still open to, dis- to debate very obviously. I'm not completely sold on the Corso thing. I have problems with some of the timelines uh, that he puts forward and also with what we know about the development of certain technologies like the transistor, like lasers and so forth. But I suspect that if we were to get to the bottom of this, what we would discover is that whatever these beings are, that they have manipulated our genetics over time, that they have actually been the ones who have created the institution or influence the creation of the institution of religion as a control factor and that they continue to influence that control factor as a way to hide their own agenda. Hey, I tell you what, let's leave this as a cliffhanger. All right. We'll we talk can about that. this more often. Right now we have two great guests coming. We have Jeff Ritzman and Alan Greenfield coming up next on The Paracast. Not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. Hi, Gene Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer. Because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast, we are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99. Just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242. Leave me a message. I will call you back. Or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's. I listen to the Paracast. Here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. 
Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. Now, I was trying to reminisce with my old friend Alan Greenfield. And by the way, we have on the Paracast, in addition to David and myself, Alan Greenfield and Jeff Ritzman. Alan, you and I used to hang out a lot in the early days. And you are under this delusion that we both got drunk and did what? No, 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 no. Well, we didn't both get drunk. You got drunk. I, actually, we were kind of drunk on 48 hours of lack of sleep. Yeah, and, ladies and uh, gentlemen, it's a different kind of drunk. We were ensconced in the uh, in my uh, suite overlooking Times Square, preparing for our annual New Year's Eve BN, I guess you could have called it, considering the timing of it. And... Uh, so we were talking about science fiction and comic books, which was then a relatively rarefied uh, field. And suddenly you said, out of the blue, why don't we invite Stan Lee to our New Year's Eve party? And I said, sure. I mean, I've been up for 48 hours, too. So you called him. He didn't come, but he did talk to us for a long time. Seriously, you guys, how, how did you even have his phone number? It was in the phone book in those days. Uh, in the, at, oh. at that time, it was not like he was the famed uh, television personality and entrepreneur of uh, films spun off from his uh, comics uh, that he is today. I think uh, people who are involved in, I'm in Atlanta, and, or near Atlanta actually, and uh, they have this annual thing called Dragon Con, which most people who are into that sort of thing know about. Right. And it's this huge thing that I tend to avoid going to because it's 20,000, 30,000 people that show up at it, and that's just not my my kind of convention, unless they've all come to hear me, which is uh, <laughs> another matter, and and are all paying customers, then then I probably and you're getting thirty percent of the gate net. thirty <laughs> yeah, percent of the gate. I'll come and I'll sing and I'll dance and I'll do Jolson, um, which I might do anyway uh, at any moment. But um, in any case, those fields, science fiction and uh, and comic books, were very narrow comic books were on the verge of going out of business at that point and um, science fiction fandom if they had a hundred people that showed up at a convention anything other than Worldcon which uh, was oh, a, maybe a thousand people maybe maybe several hundred will say was just infinitesimal by comparison to today's standards and uh, the big break on that didn't come until the 1970s. It was ufology was competitive with it in terms of its contingents, in terms of its uh, people showing up at events and so forth. And um, I think ufology kind of peaked out in 1967 at the uh, Commodore Hotel convention, where it was kind of a blending of ufology and science fiction and the East Coast version of Haight Ashbury and the, in the East Village, which was then just hitting, and we had. Uh, it's been estimated as much as 12,000 people uh, at the convention to see Roy Thinnes, the then major uh, television version of the X-Files on the Invaders, as it was called, in color 
a Quinn Martin production, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But, and uh, Quinn Martin, by the way, being the creator and producer of The Fugitive. That, Great stuff. Good. That's, boy, good television you're talking about. I, as you said, The Invaders, I just remembered the whole opening montage and the music was just fantastic. Well, good show. I, Creepy stuff. When I think about The Invaders, all I, all I can think of is Harlan Ellison's one-time uh, comment that all television is just uh, a way of getting David Jansen back on the road again. And uh, <laughs> that was certainly one of those shows, you know, the semi-anthology where the, the fixed character goes to a different setting every yeah. uh, that I understand that uh, you're now channeling David Jansen. Is that correct, sir? Uh, no, I do not channel David Jansen. He had nothing to say in his lifetime. I'm pretty sure he has very little to say now. Ooh. And he was in the Green Berets, which makes him a warmongering uh, fascist. I can say that he is safely among those who have gone on to to a better place. So he can't come back and say something to you? Well, I don't know. Sometimes they come back. <laughs> <laughs> you can't you can't ever win in this game. But legally speaking, I can say due to the screwiness of US law, the day after you die you can pretty much say anything about anyone. So. Well, let's just say this about something, and that is you were telling me you were going to go to a fortieth anniversary observance of the Mothman. Some kind of convention or meeting? Well, they, they have this thing every year in, in uh, uh, the, the town where the Mothman sightings of the 1960s, the famous ones, actually there were earlier episodes and, uh, interestingly enough, much more recent episodes of the Mothman type thing. I mean, the term is, we'll just say, strange uh, butterfly-like creatures uh, of you know human proportions or, or larger. But the, the town where this ha happened, Point Pleasant, West Virginia, which was also where the Silver Bridge was located, they have this each year. And by coincidence or whatever, um, they had scheduled an event just less than a month from now. And, of course, two weeks ago we had, unfortunately, another comparable not as many fatalities, but comparable bridge disaster in, in Minneapolis. Uh, about a week before that, there was a sighting of a Mothman-like creature in St. Paul, the twin city of Minneapolis. And uh, Oh, really wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay. I was here first, but uh, actually not. Uh, it's on that. There's some people now that uh, keep track of UFO sightings everywhere all the time. It's sort of an informal NORAD of UFOs and the case was um, remarkably similar to the Mothman cases and was viewed by two people with binoculars and was reported prior to the bridge disaster. Also, as you know, I do a lot of work with um, ciphers and I uh, noticed that this bridge, which seems to have had no name as such, and in my part of the country they do name interstate bridges usually after Lester Maddox or some other awful human being, but, but apparently it simply had a letter and a number, and it was an interstate bridge. Well, the letter and number, if you use the, um, the cipher of the euphonauts, as I call it, adds up to the same um, um, equivalence as if you reduce the term the Mothman prophecy to, uh, to the same code. The odds against that are tremendous. And uh, I didn't, um, I, I always confine myself to what I can find manually in about 15 minutes on the theory that if you look long enough, 
there being an infinite number of numbers and an infinite number of words, you can always find something that corresponds. But that was a ready, easy correspondence. Um, also, the Silver Bridge has the same value, so it was predictive. It didn't stop anything, didn't save any lives, and it never does. That's the strange thing about it. It's always viewable in retrospect, but it's not so exact that you can see it uh, prior to it happening. Uh, that is not necessarily true of UFO cases. I do have uh, a fair number since I since the first edition of um, Secret Cipher, the Euphonauts, which is now what uh, over ten years ago. Uh, of people who have used the cipher to predict UFO-related events, none of them particularly spectacular, but all of them showing the predictive aspect that I, I said would self-validate or self-repudiate the uh, theory that I was propounding, and I was okay with either, uh, has shown itself to be um, uh, self-validating. Now, Alan, um, you just said something, though, that is really kind of telling, in that the prescience of the use of the cipher was really obvious after the fact. That almost sounds like, you know, fitting the evidence to the event or fitting the validity of the cipher method to what happened. And I, I guess the more skeptical members of the audience would say, well, couldn't you really end up then finding that that would be relatively possible to do no matter what bridge had collapsed? I guess what. Uh, of course, it would if if you applied that and worked for days and weeks on end to find something that corresponds to it. What I do is I have a fixed rule of thumb, which establishes that if I can't find something that corresponds to an event within 15 minutes out of my own resources with no mm -hmm. computer gimmickry or anything else, in other words, just manually using the cipher, I consider it to be a non-hit. And the fact that it easily comes and is uh, is very, very close, and we're dealing with a complex series of words such as the Silver Bridge, uh, Mothman, the Mothman Prophecy. These are not, uh, you know, short phrases like the word the or, or something of that sort. Sure, it's easier to do after the fact, and I suspect that if you could do it before the fact on major events, then probably you would change the event. There is actually uh, some dialogue in the movie The Mothman Prophecy, which I think is an infinitely underrated film, just as film, a uh, claw film. It actually, um, I consider it to be a masterpiece, and it, uh, it just it, it, the cinematography is particularly good at catching the mood of the subject, even though they they change a lot of the details and update it to the uh, what was then current times, um, I th uh, which I think was appropriate to do. Um, it nevertheless, I think, is a really good film. There is a, a discussion with a mythical uh, professor in Chicago who had uh, been involved in research and got out of it. And I think he, more than the lead character, is modeled on John Keel, and he pretty well said, it will do you no good to predict these events. Uh, these these are harbingers of strange events, but you never quite figure it out right until it until it happens and it becomes uh, retroactively obvious to you why. Uh, how it was connected. And in the film, of course, exactly that happens. Uh, uh, he draws the lead character, the, um, uh, draws two and two together and gets five and concludes that there's going to be an event at the chemical factory 
which is upriver from the bridge. And only when the bridge starts to collapse does it become clear to him that a that the event that is happening is is the bridge, not the chemical factory more or less adjacent to it. Yeah, you can make that argument. You can make that argument about almost anything. The question is, how close is it? If it's a close enough match, mm-hmm. it would take uh, only a diehard skeptic to say there, is, there isn't anything to this. And as I said, with the easier things, such as going from the information derived from one UFO case and predicting the next, that's happened many times. And not only do the, uh, according to my mail, do the hits outnumber the misses, the, the hits are 100% of the time of people that have mastered the cipher. It's, uh, I can't recall a single instance, and I'd be the first to you know, own up to it, uh, where someone has made a prediction that did not uh, come out to be correct. So there's a, a substantial extenuating circumstance. Now, I don't want this to become, you know, the, the, the cipher, the validity or non-validity of the cipher. I have sufficient confidence to say if you read the, the two books, understand the cipher, and experiment yourself, the probability is you will reach the conclusion that there is, whereas we cannot say with certainty, I certainly don't, why it works, it certainly does work. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And we're talking to Alan Greenfield. And Alan is, amongst other things, author of Secret Rituals of the Men in Black and Secret Cipher of UFO Knots. We also have Jeff Ritzman, who was a regular and a friend of the show. Jeff, I know that you wanted to come on here and ask a lot of questions of Alan. So now's, yeah. your, now's your chance. Go ahead. You don't have enough show for all that, I don't think. Well, we'll do our best, my friend. <laughs> Give it a try. Well, I think 
I, I don't know how much uh, of what I've told you guys over what five, six shows now. First, how let much, me say that you know that, that I am not now nor ever have been a member of the Communist Party, but I know people who are. <laughs> okay. I don't know uh, how much. And it's uh, okay by me, comrade. <laughs> I don't know how much uh, Alan knows about what I've told you guys, but uh, just to to lay it out kind of quickly, Alan, what um, what's going on with me over you know a series of years, probably since I was a kid has been, I guess, what people would, de- would deem the, the alien experience or experience, as they call it. And I've noticed over a certain amount of time and a certain amount of events that have gone on, certain things, and I kind of, I listened to the last show that you were on, and I heard a lot about what you had to say about the extraterrestrial hypothesis and how it's not bearing really any fruit, per se, and trying to look in other directions and I've kind of been like a big proponent of that over the years as well that we're not really getting anywhere um, it's not a dead end we can't rule it out as a dead end but we're not getting anywhere with the uh, with the current line of thought and we need to start looking in other directions and the one direction that I thought was most not only the most interesting but but uh, seemed to actually bear out some things in my own life was that it's more of a um, I don't know if you want to quote-unquote occult connections in the world of, of UFO research um, in things that I personally have seen. And one of the biggest questions I had for you was, it seems to me, and I told David this when we first met, I said, uh, a lot of times if people are genuinely seeking out a UFO experience, they will have one. And I don't mean that they're brainwashing themselves to, to make a, a bird out to be a flying saucer. I'm talking they'll have a really legitimate, potent experience. Almost like if you seek out the Enigma, it will find you before you find it. Do you have any insight into that, into you know what that might, might mean or what that points to? Or have you had similar experiences yourself with that kind of thing or not? Well, first, um, I agree with you completely that that is the case. Now, the question is, why is it the case? And, uh, and in, what does that imply for us? Uh, allow me to sound like I'm digressing a little bit here. I'm not. I, I just uh, I need to establish something first. I, I gave a lot of thought to the uh, to the structure because I'm interested in um, survival research and so forth. I, I've given a lot of thought to the structure of the human brain and whether it is consistent with the notion of of being essentially the physical vehicle which explains all phenomena of of human nature or whether it is not. And at some point after years of, of, of working with uh, neurologists and neurophysiologists and other, other persons who are in that field, uh, I, I reached a rather stunning conclusion that the primary function of the human brain is, is sort of like that of a, um, a frequency tuner, um, um, an ordinary radio uh, in a sense. It, uh, its primary function is to damp down inputs that come to us through our various senses to the point that we can function in the ordinary, common, everyday consensus reality of which we presumably are all a part. Well, if the brain is a damping mechanism by definition, what is it damping out? Well, is it just stray material that is irrelevant to the um, to our 
primary hierarchy of, of, of needs to survive, or is it also damping out, in addition to that, a lot of important things that are out there? Stop. In a second line of thinking, I came to realize a very long time ago that the consensus reality, so-called, that we're all a part of is a, a, an infinitesimal portion of a greater reality, which constantly, uh, as it were, knocks at the door of our consciousness and wants to get into our consciousness, various portions of it, some, some in a certain sense intentionally, some non-intentionally just by, by their nature, and um, occasionally someone, despite their efforts to stay on an even keel, no pun intended, will, sorry, will, will, <laughs> never, will nevertheless sort of wander off and uh, become a part of their reality. Let me see if I can illustrate this. Uh, an, an apparition is a good example of a spontaneous case where someone has a fixed view of reality, they feel very confident of it, and then all of a sudden, they see something that they simply cannot explain. They immediately reach a conclusion that it is an angel or a demon or the ghost of the dead or whatever or an apparition of the living. Um, and it might be something simply outside of our normal range of consciousness, particularly if more, there's more than one person uh, who is the percipient involved. What this has to do with, with your point is I think that there is a coherent world or worlds running parallel to our own that actively seek to impinge upon our consciousness. And I don't mean that necessarily in a negative way. They are available to us. And if we actually seek them out, whether through occult means, that would be magical practices, magic, or through seance, or through simply opening ourselves up to the greater universe, yeah, I think absolutely, uh, uh, given the right set of circumstances, it 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 being uh, um, just not defining which particular portion of it will come in and will affect us in in as dramatic a way as uh, as anything in our day-to-day -day reality a brick falls from the top of a building and hits us on the head uh, there isn't any doubt about the reality of the brick or your head and the consequences thereof well some of this is like a brick falling off of a building um, some of it is perceived in that way and it's more like uh, some Someone giving you um, the cure for for uh, an illness that you're afflicted by, and it's perceived as a healing. Uh, people will tend to try to box it into what they've been taught about the nature of things, or what they would like to believe is the nature of things. But regardless of that, the context of it is not nearly as important as the phenomenon which has been going on throughout human history, which is person has a consensus view of reality either through design or, or through happenstance, something outside of that impinges on their consciousness. And if they're open to it at that point, it will continue to impinge on their consciousness. And by their consciousness, I don't simply mean their subjective reality. I mean that it can affect their objective reality. In other words, they can disappear into that, that world for a while and disappear out of it. And um, that would be perceived from this side of it as, a, as an abduction or as a 
um, teleportation, depending on how one looked at it. Um, I think that the, the way we describe these things in terms of good and bad or good and evil or, or how it affects us is, is, is dependent on our own uh, set of values, which is not something that's going to, to, to necessarily change in, in the face of this type of phenomenon. But I think the phenomenon has occurred throughout history. And the thing is, it has been categorized in so many different ways that the different fields that ought to be working together, the occultists, the uh, paranormal researchers, the ufological researchers, the um, people that are interested in mediumship, those who, who put a spiritual component on it and those who are, who are rank materialists, all of those people would profit by a lot more interaction and, and especially a lot more comparison of notes. What you want to get away from is your are the opinions of the individual as to uh, whether this is a good or a bad thing or or or, or a, a useful or a non useful thing and simply what are the points in common between these phenomena? Have I answered your question or have I answered too much of it? Yeah, no, no, not at all. I mean, I think the over the overbearing point of it is that throughout years when I've told people this. Uh, the common answer that you'll get is, well, you've got it on the brain, so of course you're going to see something. And that's totally not my point and what I have said about it, because I'm in general a pretty skeptical guy. But I've seen things, um, and, and David's actually visited me before, and he's actually seen things in my home. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll give you a really, a really good, for instance, of a scenario that happened over 10 years ago now, I think, where... I became unbelievably frustrated with UFO research in general. I'd been doing it at the time about 13 years, and I wasn't getting anywhere. I wasn't seeing anything other than the common commonalities that are already in public knowledge about you know, either a sighting case or an abduction case or, or whatever you would run across. So I started looking at it from the aspect of how did it affect the individual? What was the individual's, what, what, what happened to them after this event that, that they experienced? And when I started to go through and call back a lot of people and talk to them again a year or two years after the fact, some more than that, I found that a lot of people uh, were not doing very well. A lot of people became grossly obsessed with the subject, as I had been as well, to the point where unbridled fear took over their lives, uh, divorces ensued, drug abuse, alcohol abuse ensued, um, a total abandonment of any spirituality in their life, no matter what it might be. I mean, just a host of really, really bad stuff. And when I boiled all that down and I began looking at other pieces, I kind of fit this piece, puzzle piece together. And this awareness kind of hit me that I said back then that uh, the label I put on it was demonic. These days, I tend to lean towards more something a little more generic rather than demonic. I call it toxic uh, relationship uh, between us and them, them in quotes. And the point of the story is that I had a, a lecture to do in Washington, D.C. to a, a quite a number of people. And it was about the experience or phenomena at the time. And I thought to myself, now, do I go to this thing and tell people that I think it's demonic, a demonic thing or an evil type of thing? 
whatever that means. Uh, and I could try my best to kind of explain it that we're not talking about little guys with pitchforks and horns, but we're talking about something that is just a negative energy of some sort that is manifesting, uh, and it's not exactly a good thing. Do I say that or do I not? And I commiserated over that for about a week. And the particular night uh, was about two or three days before the conference. I had a, uh, my wife and I had a couple over that we often talked this kind of stuff about or with. And um, I laid out for them what essentially I, what pickle I was in here. Do I tell people this? And effectively, I mean, I hate to say it this way, but you know, essentially, end anyone ever wanting to talk to me about UFOs again because this view in ufology is not a very popular one. Or do I just ignore it and you know tell them what's happened to me over the years and not present what I think I may have run across? And we talked around oof, four or five hours pretty intently on what I'd come across, what I thought, how it fit, how it seemed to work in, you know, in conjunction with everything uh, else that was in the files at the time. And um, nobody really had any good answer for me. We went to bed, my wife and I, woke up the next morning. The first words out of my wife's mouth were, who left after, you know, I'm going to say uh, Bob and Jen. That's not their real names, but who, did anybody come over after Bob and Jen left last night? And I said, not that I'm aware of. Well, I got the feeling that you were out there in the living room talking to somebody after they were gone. I said, not that I know of. And we proceeded then to get dressed. And as I was putting on my jacket, I looked up in the mirror in our bedroom to find that there was a symbol drawn on it in a white material probably about 12 inches tall and um, it was a, a large symbol comprised of maybe like three or four geometric shapes uh, I've never publicized the symbol I haven't wanted to put it on the internet because I know how that kind of thing goes but I asked my wife did you do it and she said no and the bedroom door was locked so no one could have gotten in here to do it and uh, I took that symbol and I called uh, Dr. Mario Peg. Paglini, I always have a hard time with his name, but he had written a book called uh, Cryptic Writings, and uh, I had been to one of his lectures, and I had heard what he had to say and wasn't all that interested in it, to be honest with you, but I called him because this thing showed up, I faxed it to him, and he called me back, and he said, well, it's, it is what is known to me as angelic writing. It was an Okian, in other words. Yeah, I'd I like to see it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I know exactly what it is. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
During the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany, we have Alan Greenfield and Jeff Ritzman with us. Alan, you want to continue with that? Well, I just wanted to say that I'm very familiar with the so-called language of the angels, the angelic writing. In fact, uh, some people, uh, George Andrews among them, have said that it's the lingua franca of the universe, which... Uh, is an interesting thought, and I do deal with that in, not to plug my own stuff, but secret ciphers and secret rituals. In fact, you'll see some of those same uh, symbols in the book. So it's not in my own interest because they're the only books that I don't seem to get any, uh, <laughs> any, any royalties from simply because uh, there's a sort of a, uh, there's a weirdness there that I probably shouldn't go into on the air. But uh, suffice to say this, I would love to see that if you could. Um, well, yeah, I'll, I'll absolutely, absolutely, I'll email it to you. What he said back to me, because I asked him, I said, well, what does it mean? I, I want to know what it means. And, uh, he said, well, there's there's no literal English translation. He says, I can give you the gist of what it's saying. Uh, he said, I can tell you that I've never seen, I've never come across samples of this writing in quite this configuration. And he said, that configuration as it sits leads me to believe that it's like an, a rather urgent challenge. And I said, well, what, what, what's the challenge? What, what, do, what does it mean? Challenge to who? To me, I'm assuming. He's like, well, I would assume to you. And uh, he said, uh, essentially what it says is, now you know, do you have the courage to stand up for what you believe? <laughs> and, you know, needless to say, he's like, does that fit with anything that you're going through right now? Does that, you know, I was like, well, well, well yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and consequently, I went to you know this conference and gave the very unpopular view that this was an extraordinarily toxic uh, experience for at least for us and uh, and 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 surprisingly enough I was like really well received with it uh, which I didn't expect to the point where I had very extraordinarily high level UFO researchers coming to me saying that was a fantastic talk and and alluding to the fact that a lot of them wish that they could come out and say something like that but they're afraid of the repercussions from the community what would happen if they did say something like that so you know that point I kind of thought to myself well I'm on to something here and whether or not it's popular or not I don't care anymore, but I have found that in my own life, it was extraordinarily toxic and to the point where, you know, of course, you lose a lot of friends with this kind of thing. We, I've, I've talked to Gene and David before about how my wife and how I had a fair amount of friends that would come over for dinner and, you know, when they start seeing lights in your house and they start seeing people walking around that aren't there and, and assorted other weirdness, which David has gotten a very small glimpse of, people don't want to be around you. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, uh, it, it's just, it was at the time, it was almost extraordinary, de extraordinarily debilitating to me personally. I wouldn't, I had a very hard time going out outside at night. I, I would have trouble sleeping. It, uh, it was just extraordinarily toxic to me. And I thought that above anything, I should tell people that, that people who are looking, there are people out there actively looking for that kind of experience. And I was trying to tell them, I don't really think you know what you're asking for. <laughs> so, well, but the, the, I think part of the question you have to ask there is, will people who are seeking this experience experience something different what is the exactly. objectivity of this um and you know jeff in in your case there has been from what you've shared with us such a wide range 
of this high strangeness stuff in your life that yeah. you know this begs the question what what part of this is perception of external reality what part of this is projection mm-hmm. and and that comes back alan to the question of what is the actual objectivity of any of this high strangeness that manifests to, to to different people in different ways but then to shared groups in different ways and and is this a situation where there is a symbiosis by where this phenomenon derives energy or sustenance from our emotional reactions and is perhaps the negativity that Jeff is describing uh, a form of, of nourishment or energy that is being exploited by some unknown entity? Well, it's not an easy question to answer. I think you've, you've arrived at the $64 uh, question and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I don't have a clear answer for that. I believe we're dealing, based on my experience and what what I have derived from talking to gazillions of other people that have had experiences much more sophisticated than my own, that we're dealing with more than one source. That's number one. In other words, uh, you can you can get you can certainly no question about it get toxic, dangerous vile, uh, frightening, and ultimately self-destructive experiences, Whether, whatever your mindset might be. Now, if your mindset is, I want to do this for uh, a cheap thrill or just to prove to myself that there's something beyond the, the range of uh, normal uh, day-to-day activity, you're probably going to get more than you bargained for, and then the subjective aspect comes in because you realize that you've opened a door that you can't shut. And then it really does become a subjective, uh, something that can lead to, uh, to I, I hate to use archaic terms like insanity, but let's say make you a very dysfunctional human being. And that type of toxicity definitely occurs. There are mm-hmm. people much better prepared for this sort of thing. In occult circles, at least in theory, you do years of preparation before you seek things like this out because... The sheer intensity of it is bound to be toxic. It's sort of like being exposed to nuclear radiation without protection. That thing. Yeah. Sure, or it can kill, but if you're unprotected and don't know the, the properties involved, it will certainly kill. It killed the discoverers of it, and uh, it uh, has that potential if mishandled all the time. I also think, however, that there are things with toxic intent, and that intent can be directed in the sense that it's uh, that it's uh, outward reaching it can also be the intent of creating fear there seems to be a type of let's just call it alien presence that can i put it bluntly gets off on fear on oh, yeah. human fear sure and a lot of the uh, abduction experiences and this is something that i dwell on at great in great detail in in my books because i think that it's something the fear is intentional the medical aspects are, are a kind of bizarre playing doctor, and they're meant to be frightening to the ex- experiencer. And my advice to people is if you wind up in a situation like that, if you can laugh at it or enjoy it, you will find it's over very quickly because they don't get the, they don't get the response that they need. They mm-hmm. eat fear. They're, they're fear vampires in that sense. But on the other hand, here we have a case of a person debating whether to, to lay out 
their ideas, and my answer to that is short and simple. Absolutely. Lay them out. Let the chips fall where they may. Uh, I mean, you can always frame it in terms of this is my opinion. I always do that because, you know, we're out on the radical fringe. None of us. Oh, right. This is all uh, uh, unknown territory, and uh, we're all going to be apt to not have a complete picture, make mistakes, and so forth. And I have Absolutely. no problem in mm-hmm. saying that. But having, having said that, uh, while he's debating, okay, should I say this or not, apparently a very non-toxic, benevolent, and equally alien source is giving you the appropriate answer, which sounds very benevolent, and, and uh, that also is present, and apparently you perceived it as good advice. Um, yeah. um, I, it wasn't me. It was, it was clearly, <laughs> and if, if, if your wife wasn't getting unusual visitors at a late hour, which is another problem that you should deal with at home, yeah. I would, I would yeah. say that uh, the probability here is that, that that was also an indication, and a paradoxical one, maybe intentionally so, there are benevolent intelligences that are within your reach as well. And so here we have the, on the one hand, we have the subjective response of those unprepared going skits on us because they don't want the world really to be any different than it is. They just want the cheap thrill of the, of the you know, the ride at the amusement park, and then they want to get off the ride and feel dizzy for a few minutes and go back to, quote, normal. But right. if you have one of these experiences spontaneously, you're never going to look at the world in the same way. No. And you're either okay with that or you're not okay with that, mm-hmm. and that depends on your background and so forth. But right. on the other side of the picture, there do appear to be, for lack of a better term, objectively positive and objectively negative entities or features that you can have experiences with that are absolutely benevolent and there are those that are absolutely toxic. The thing I would communicate to people is there is no predicting which you're going to run into unless you know a great great deal more than anybody that I know does know. We can compute the odds in that in that same language. There's a whole medieval um, Renaissance discussion uh, among uh, uh, followers of Dr. John Dee and uh, his associate Edward Kelly, that, Sir Edward Kelly, that he was the uh, astronomer royal to uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth I and did a lot of experiments with this. A lot of the experiments produced ways of communicating with these entities and which were, quote, good entities and which were, quote, bad entities. Now, that, of course, may be relative to the, to the interests of a proper Englishman of that generation and might be entirely different for us now. But suffice to say that even when you do that sort of thing, and I know I have done that kind of experiment, there's absolutely, once you get the experiment underway, there's no guarantee that there won't be negative side effects and there won't be positive side effects. The most demonic presence, uh, for lack of a better term, and there really isn't a better term, there are some that are more scientific sounding, but they're not necessarily better, can have positive side effects. And the most positive experience can have negative side effects. The best thing to do is to warn people that you're venturing into unknown territory and beyond this point there be dragons. There also right. may be new worlds, but mm. there be dragons as well. I'll tell you what, and we're entering. Sail off into the uh, into the Atlantic. You may find a new world or you may be in the middle of a hurricane. It's just the nature of the 
It's the nature of reality. Before we proceed with our tropical storm reporting of this evening's broadcast of the Powercast, we'll take a brief break, and then we'll be back with <laughs> Alan Greenfield, who is author of such books as The Secret Cipher of UFO Knots and Secret Rituals of the Men in Black, and Jeff Ritzman returning on the Powercast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We're back with Alan Greenfield and Jeff Ritzman. Jeff, did you want to ask a further question before we proceed? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Alan, the other thing that I've I've come across over the years, and I'd like to get your take on it, is um, some similarities of the individuals that tend to have these experiences, whether it be uh, we had a a gentleman on the Paracast board recently recount a, a story that was inexplicably weird, but really didn't have anything to do with the UFO stuff. And he directly uh, called me out uh, to the thread by the thread name and said, hey, Jeff, you know, or something to that effect. And I read it, and it's the same feel. It's the same feel of the extraordinarily weird uh, scenario. Apparently, he ran into what amounted to a whole family of very strange-looking people down a uh, or coming out of uh, some sort of drainage tunnel when he was a kid. It involved everything from glowing eyes to, you know, almost Nordic-like features and things like that. And I, I told him, I said, well, it, the strangeness part I totally identify with. And I privately asked him some questions. I pretty much asked him some questions as far as, uh, as himself, not anything about the event itself, but rather about him which I already thought I knew the answers to, and I posted them on a private web page for him to view later. But the similarities are that I, that I find in people who have this experience are national origin or ancestral origin, being German, Irish, or Celtic. As far as the individual themselves, they are above average IQ. They, at one point or another, I have call, I've called it one way or another, you either dabble, fool around with, or practice an occult practice of some sort, whether it be something even as simplistic as a Ouija board. And there are other similarities within that, but everybody seems to fit that profile right down the line. Every person I've met at one point or another has asked me, what do those mean? And I tell them, I don't know what that means. But I know that everyone that I've come across, when I ask those series of questions, what's your national nationality or ancestral history? What's your IQ? Have you ever taken a a proper IQ test? Have you ever uh, at all dabbled in, in occult practices of any kind? You always get these people coming back. I'm Celtic or I'm German or I'm Irish. Uh, my IQ is 140 or above, uh, you know, that kind of thing. What do you think that means? What do you think that is? Well, I think that there is a, there's a certain school of occultism that, first of all, would be labeled occultism and not, let's say, voodoo, that will 
just by default tend to be people of those particular backgrounds because that is the background that identifies the phenomena that they're dealing with as occult phenomena. But at the same time, um, I mean, we have the, the whole trance dancing uh, possession of, of uh, Santeria, Voudon, Brujeria, uh, uh, all of that comes from uh, people of African origin and um, Caribbean origin and uh, Latin American mm -hmm. origin. So that would sort of, the question is, are we dealing with entirely different phenomena in those contexts, or are we dealing with the same phenomenon but uh, seen through a different cultural lens? You may be, in a sense, interviewing people through a particular lens. I don't, I don't find that to be the case. Now, I have not systematically looked at people's ethnicity, but I can assure you that that profile does not necessarily fit all of the phenomena of contact that I am I'm aware of. In fact, I would say not even anything like the majority of, of the contact. If you're referring to the so-called contactee as opposed to the contact tour, now that would be range all the way from identifiable human uh, types all the way to things that are totally non-human and not even humanoid in nature. So uh, I'm not sure exactly if, if I'm being helpful there or not, but I, I've not found that to be the case. You get people who are, are uh, not very bright at all having experiences, and you have people who are of uh, radically different ethnicities from those that you describe. You may be more likely to run across people of that sort simply because of your own, I have no idea what your background is, but uh, right. your own background or, or, or social circle or whatever. It's like right. the, uh, the occult organization that uh, I recently had a parting of the ways from is certainly not uh, racist in its orientation. That It has many, many problems, but that doesn't happen to be one of them, and yet it's a predominantly white European Protestant and Catholic background, and that would be, you know, I would say 85 to 90 percent of the membership of the organization. I think that's, you know, in part because birds of the feather tend, for whatever reasons, good or bad, to flock together, but um, uh, it's not a reflection of, in the same city that that's true, they're also uh, rather closed in Sa uh, Santeria and Brujeria and uh, Voudon groups that uh, are predominantly black or predominantly Hispanic, and uh, they produce phenomena all the time, even routinely, I would say. Well, the, the thing is, as you guys are talking about this, I'm thinking about all of South America and certainly the wide range of paranormal uh, phenomena that occur down there would certainly not apply to that matrix, Jeff. On the other right. hand, on the continent of South America, Brazil is a very strong standout in terms of the range of para paranormal phenomena. And I'm thinking, of course, specifically about the whole faith healing thing and then really you know, very compelling cases like the case of Ari Go, a.k.a. Dr. Fritz, um, a very well-researched paranormal situation that really has no direct correlation anywhere else in South America. And in fact, the, um, the Dr. Fritz phenomenon has played out only in Brazil. Now, that's not to say there aren't faith healers throughout the rest of the continent, but I, I don't look at the case of Ari Go as a case of a faith healer. I look at the case of Ari Go as a genuine 
and very compelling uh, paranormal uh, episode. But again, it, it sort of underscores that in, in Brazil, the, the percentage of, of the occurrences of these types of phenomenon are much higher than the rest of the continent. At the same time, we also have things like UFO hotspots, which do tend to be regional in nature. And, you know, there are people who theorize that some of this is the result of ge geological phenomenon that we're not familiar with. But at the same time, you have things like Mexico City, one of the most polluted cities in the world, that has had, well, certainly in the 90s, had a huge UFO flap, a tremendous amount of photographic evidence, and continues to generate a huge number of compelling events. So the question is, is this a byproduct of the religious uh, situation in these places? I mean, where you have, for example, um, you know, strong Catholic roots that run very deep throughout cer certainly all of South America, but in some countries more than others, but then also the crossover pollination with Santeria and Brujeria and uh, all of these sort of uh, pay more paganistic offshoots where is the predisposition towards those types of value systems what facilitates these phenomena occurring you know, has anybody, and this is, I guess, an interesting question, Alan, has anybody ever attempted to create an analysis on a global level to try to correlate the existence of paranormal phenomenon with the cultural elements of the societies in question? Do we see a higher number of these incidents, for example, in strongly Catholic countries versus, let's say, a country like Sweden, where you have a tremendous amount of agnosticism. Do we see less paranormal activity in places like that? Has anyone ever attempted to do a study or analysis of that sort that you know of? Yes, is the answer, but let, let me qualify it a little bit. Okay. One of the reasons that I'm in favor of a lot more uh, comparison of notes between people in one area and people in another area, that is paranormal researchers and ufologists being you know, two examples of, of people that ought to be comparing notes more often, uh, occultists and uh, metaphysicians and, uh, and spiritualists ought to be comparing notes. Uh, Dr. Carlos Osis, who is uh, Icelandic, I believe, has done a lot of cross-cultural analysis. And Dr. Ian Stevenson at the University of Virginia has done a lot of cross-cultural analysis in relation to near-death experiences and to purported cases of reincarnation. Their interest, of course, is why these phenomena tend to be uh, to show up in certain cultures in much larger numbers than in others it seems based on their research and this is my interpretation not theirs i, I let me say that that a lot of it has to do with the acceptability of the particular phenomenon that uh, we are we're discussing at any given point. In other words, in a culture that is reincarnation friendly, let's say the one, the one most commonly thought of is India, mm -hmm. uh, people are much more likely to report an instance of possible reincarnation than in a society 
uh, like, say, Ireland, which is uh, heavily Catholic and Catholicism uh, is not uh, reincarnation friendly. And what we don't know is, is this a, uh, an artifact of reporting? Are people far more hesitant to report something that violates the, the, the social norms of the society? Or mm-hmm. are there actually less cases in societies that are less amenable to it? You mentioned um, uh, the, uh, the variety of phenomenon in Brazil. Well, what else is true of Brazil? What's the most conspicuous thing um, geographically about Brazil? It's the Portuguese-speaking country among Spanish-speaking countries in in, uh, South America. But there are other things as well. It's a more permissive culture. Brazil, by its nature, has a reputation of being a permissive whatever type culture. And because it is, I suspect that cases are more readily, of of all sorts of unusual events, are more readily reported, they reach our ears more readily, and people are more open to them. Does that mean there are more cases? Well, see our previous discussion in the the first hour uh, about that. It is absolutely the case if you open yourself up to this stuff, there's more of it. Now, whether it was all there and you're blocking it out to begin with, or whether opening up to it attracts it to you, sort of like a, a magnet and, and something that is magnetic, I really don't know at this point. But I do know that it, it, that it is the case. If you're open to it, it's more likely. If you're completely closed down on it, it becomes rather unlikely. Gene and I have a mutual friend in uh, Jim Mosley, who calls himself a psychic negative, which is it seems like whenever he's around, <laughs> nothing happens, you know. And you go to some place that, and 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 I really uh, haven't had a, a, a conversation about metaphysics with Jim for some years. Uh, we 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 talk now and again, but in his heyday, he was. Among other things, he was an atheist and a, a materialist who was interested in UFOs. There's nothing wrong with being either one of those things, but the fact is that that's not going to be particularly conducive to being open to things that completely change your world, unless, of course, you have an inner life that is secretly longing for something beyond, which I suspect all people do, simply because uh, people don't like the notion that their their lives are going to terminate in a few short years, and it would be nice to have some some escape clause written in the contract. And uh, I think all human beings are subject to that, no matter what they say to themselves or anyone else. Hey, but, before we sign that contract... I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer 
an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash crane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we have Alan Greenfield and Jeff Ritzman joining us. Alan is the author of a number of books, including The Secret Cipher of the UFO Knots and Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. And I'm interested in what you were saying there, Alan, about certain people will attract events and other people will not attract events or become negative influences, mentioning Mosley, although he has mentioned a few experiences that he has had where he thought they may have some kind of vaguely psychic origin. But the other person who has talked about this subject, of course, is our old friend John Keel, where he felt that negative UFO events or psychic phenomena was being attracted by certain people, and I think it's he or someone else said, to run is an invitation to be chased. Well, I didn't say that, but I would. <laughs> you can attribute it if you want to. Uh, yeah, Keel seems to be uh, just the opposite. First of all, I did want to say about Mosley, in fairness, that one time we went ghost hunting together, and I took this spectacular picture of an apparition just where it was supposed to be. But I did uh, sort of wander away from Jim, who was pointing out uh, having also been a sort of a grave robber in his earlier days. Uh, he was pointing. We were in a cemetery that was said to be haunted, and he was pointing out to a mutual acquaintance who was with us uh, some of the more interesting things about the give in the earth uh, over graves as opposed to places where there were, were no burials. And I, I decided I really didn't need that particular conversation. So I wandered away and I just decided, okay, well, if, if there's something to be seen here, I'm going to broadcast it. And I said, if there's anything to be seen, show yourself now and I clicked my camera I had pretty much nothing and this this woman in a Victorian collar and a half decomposed face showed up and that has been reviewed by all kinds of experts and no one has ever been able to figure out what it is and I you, certainly don't don't claim it's hey. the ghost of the woman who is supposed to haunt the cemetery but the clothing fits the period and it certainly was while Jim Mosley was within shouting distance although I did know shouting <laughs> hey Alan do you still have that image Oh, yeah, it's on my, my website. Just pull up Alan Greenfield and, and go to the Assembly of Solomon site, and it's on, I think, the front page. If not, it's hmm. on one of the pages there, so you can okay. 
peel through that and, and, and find the image. And it's been investigated by um, Kodak specialists both back then when I had the original 35-millimeter negative, which they really like to have. Digital has kind of made ghost uh, photographic ghost hunting a harder job. Uh, and I've since had it investigated in a bizarre sort of way by the KGB <laughs> at my request. But the, this is post-Soviet. I am not now, nor have I ever been a member of the et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> um, but uh, Keel is the opposite. He seems to draw this sort of thing. And I'll, I have to grant, because I'm doing a program later in the week about Gray Barker, I'll have to grant that I know some of the odd calls that Keel was getting were gray because I got a couple of those odd calls to strange noises and things like that. So the late Gray Barker was, among many things, uh, many good things, he was a prankster and threw his pranks into the into the UFO mill. But nevertheless, a lot of the things that happened uh, to, to, to Keel in his heyday uh, clearly uh, were not done by Barker or any other normal source. And uh, if, uh, if wanna, we can call Barker a normal source with great respect. Well, let's put it this way, um, a, a conventional. <laughs> no, he go. wasn't that either. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, a human <laughs> a source of human Oh, jeez. Oh, man. Uh, Gray was my friend, so I, I'll just let that I'll let that slide. <laughs> I, I do even have uh, one of my wackier theories is that those events are not hoaxes, but they're Gray going into a kind of a trance, <laughs> perhaps herbally induced trance, uh, and uh, and doing these things at the behest of of actual uh, entities that uh, he never himself believed in, but was in a sense, a spokesperson for. But, uh, you know, that's the sort of thing that makes a lot more sense at 3.30 in the morning over Times Square when we're calling Stanley and inviting him to the party. Well, maybe uh, before we do our next episode together, we'll all convene at 3.30 a.m. Eastern Time, and nice. we will call Stanley from his palatial estate in I recommend listening to this program mainly at 3.30 in the morning. I'm sure that it, that it makes make more far sense, more then. sense to the greater public. So, <laughs> well, you but, all remember yeah. that here. Okay. Uh, heard that. I, I ain't channeling no strange entity now. But boy, I like the way you smell. Okay. You hear me, Ritzman? <laughs> That's right. Um, well, but so so I mean, all right. So based on what we're talking about here, guys, um, Steinberg is the voice of reason. I guess if you live uh, long enough, you sad. see everything. If I have approached that standard, the voice of reason, believe me, the world has ended right away. Well, but I mean, based on what we're talking about here, then it, it sounds like. There is no way to to arrive at any understanding of this. People like Keel and Jacques Vallée. I mean, these guys did a lot of really good work, and ultimately they shut all this out. I mean, you know, we've tried to get Keel on the show. We tried to contact him, and he made it. I actually spoke to him on the phone. He made it very clear to me he wanted nothing to do with this anymore. Um, Valet has, you know, after a tremendous amount of good work, completely pulled away from it. Is it because these gentlemen reached the conclusion that this is simply beyond our ability to 
ultimately comprehend? Are we not ready to comprehend this, or is comprehension not part of the equation of this? Hey, maybe we should mention, Alan, how we met Jacques Vallée in the 1960s at a hotel in Chicago with Jim Mosley and Rick Hilberg and you and I. Yeah, I guess we should mention that. We called an escort service in Belate. No, no, no. I'm making that up. I'm making it up. Here. <laughs> oh. Hey, I'm French. Nah. You know, I like it. This is no, it's just that that's such a long story, and it involves the politics of ufology of that period, and it starts not, not in Chicago, but in Washington, D.C., when you got kicked out of the NICAP office at 1536 Connecticut Avenue, Washington 6, D.C., and uh, we left with you in sympathy with, with, with you because Richard Hall was then and is now an idiot. Um, and oh, how? Jesus. <laughs> he is wrong. He is totally off base. And he is Ooh. an idiot. And um, I will be glad Man. to debate his idiocy with him. In we have invited his idiocy to this program. By the way, I did meet up with Richard Hall about a decade later, and we kind of buried the hatchet in course of about a one-minute conversation where he said, well, we know it's another time, another place now, so let's not hold grudges. On the other hand, when I think of you and I, and we also called that day Ray Palmer, and he advised us what to do. Well, that's how we wound up meeting with Belay. Uh, we we call Ray Palmer, and it, rather than acting like the stuffed shirt that uh, – that idiot Richard Hall, I'm not as forgiving oh. as you, uh, did. Uh, he immediately invited us to come on up to the, come on out to the ranch and we'll, we'll have some tea and talk about UFOs. So actually he was from Wisconsin and didn't sound like that at all, but it was, uh, a rustic setting and we went to Chicago first. I think, I'm trying to remember who was there. It was Hilberg and Dale Reddick and you and I and Jim Mosley and, uh, we met with Belay before he'd had any books published. I think it was it was he was brand new and uh, talked to Dr. Heineck on the phone and he really Belay was clearly ahead of his time. I, I don't think he hit his stride until Passport to Magonia, which is not about the reality of lights in the sky, but about the um, the folkloric basis that UFO cases can be seen in. That is that the phenomena that have shown up throughout his and have been labeled folklore and legend and so forth mm -hmm. are almost identical, if not identical, with the phenomena that have shown up in relation to UFOs. That is his great contribution to the field. And he seemed like a unpretentious, regular guy. And given that he was a professor at the University of Chicago at the time, I would say that's, that's saying much. Well, but, okay, so let's get back to the question, though. Well, the question is this. Given that these gentlemen who were intelligent, insightful, in the case of Valet, ahead of his time, given that they eventually pulled away from any serious research of this stuff, given that they seem to have gotten completely turned off and ultimately gave up the pursuit of any understanding of this, are we to then interpret this as all of this quest being completely unproductive or counterproductive? Or do we as humans have the ability to potentially understand this given the limitations of our own senses, of our own thought processes, of, of our own intellectual capabilities or is it an issue of intellectual capability versus spiritual capability? Are we not evolved enough to get to the point where we can actually begin to have more of an understanding 
of these phenomena, or are we just simply at the point right now where we don't know enough about, for example, how physics works to understand how it can be that these, you know, in the case of, and, and this is a obviously a bigger topic than just this one show, but what appear to be these interdimensional manifestations is it that we just don't know enough about the dimensional construct of the universe to even try to understand this stuff? Or do we not have the basic tools or instrumentation to understand any of this yet? Is this all just a waste of time? <laughs> this is, this is, it, that is the, the big question, of course, uh, about research. It's not well, that's our show about. this evening, and we're glad that you joined us. No, 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 no. That's, <laughs> hey. not only that, that's the end of the show. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your webpage? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have Alan Greenfield, an old and dear friend of mine, and a new friend, Jeff Ritzman, joining us. Alan, it's all yours. Okay, I think that the question that we really need to deal with here is given that Belay is a scientist. Keel is not. He's a writer. Mm -hmm. He's a professional writer and has been since the 1950s. Right. Uh, whether they reached as far as they could, because their, their tendency was to look at this from the standpoint of what we can scientifically establish about the nature of the phenomena, plural, that we're dealing with. I believe there is a limit to science, period. I think uh, uh, Stephen Wolfram is probably the person most definitive in his magnum opus, uh, A New Kind of Science, uh, but uh, others have contributed to that notion as well, Arthur Kirst, the late Arthur Kirstler and so forth. That essentially, the notion that science if it can just get big enough to wrap itself around something could explain everything, is a non-starter. There is a point reached at which science no longer is going to be able to answer questions. Does that mean that science should go out of business? Obviously not. Science makes enormous contributions to human civilization and human understanding. Uh, by making it systematic, by making it verifiable, or or the opposite, which is to to 
disprove things. It, it gives us a way of sorting things out in the, in the common everyday sense. But just as Euclidean geometry breaks down somewhat when you deal with the distances within the universe, science itself tends to break down, for example, at the event horizon uh, of, of, of a black hole or when you get into contemplating a question like, well, what was before the first moment in time? the moment before the Big Bang, there is no answer to that, and the answer to that is that there's no answer within science to that. If you approach these phenomena from a strictly scientific standpoint, you will eventually reach the conclusion that we are incapable of understanding the answers. We can understand to a limited extent that the phenomena actually exist, that they impinge on our reality, and that they have an effect on us. We can even infer that there may be some method to the madness, that is, there may be some purpose involved, and that that will unfold for us as time goes on. But it essentially leaves us feeling kind of helpless, and a lot of people have mm -hmm. dropped off of the, 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 the ufology wagon in particular because they reach that point and reach the, the conclusion, I think erroneously, that if we can't solve it all within our own existing paradigm, that there's nothing to be gained by further research and there's only the kind of uh, pain and suffering uh, involved in sort of having an itch that you can't scratch. And I think we've lost a lot of good people over that. What I've done instead is I assume that I long ago uh, took as long a walk down the endless tube, to paraphrase uh, Jean Duplantier in his exit song on ufology, and reached as many conclusions as one could reach with existing science. I assume that greater scientific development will, will yield a greater understanding, but I don't think our brains will wrap around this phenomenon. I think that it is bigger than us. Does that mean that I think that there is no way that we, we can understand it at all? Uh, absolutely not. I don't assume that we can, for example, intuit it or know it in the Gnostic sense of knowing it, but I don't assume that we can either. I don't assume that scientific limitations are necessarily limitations on us as beings. First of all, because we're still evolving and the verdict is still out on whether we're an evolutionary dead end or on our way to being uber mentioned. I mean, there's just, there's, there, there's uh, utterly no way of knowing that. That, my assumption is that we keep on keeping on and we learn what we can and what we don't learn. We assume that that's a, a good, uh, good way for us to have a certain amount of uh, humility towards existence. And a bit of humility would serve well a lot of people that get involved in certain. this kind of appeal. Yeah. My lovely and highly intelligent girlfriend uh, seems to feel, um, and, and she's someone who's done a huge amount of study of the spiritual and, um, and religious side of this, she seems to feel that a potentially more productive route is a return to what used to be in human history, a closer relationship between what are now the two highly diametrically opposed fields 
of science and religion. She feels that the only way for us to really try to, to expand our own awareness in, in terms of being able to, you know, as you were saying, Alan, potentially try to override some of these limitations of science. And, and I think part of that is, is truly just our own scientific development at this point, which is not as grandiose as we'd like to think. And also, as I was saying before, the limitations of our sensory input devices, of the amount of just even the electromagnetic, the electromagnetic spectrum that we can perceive, which is really just a tiny little sliver with a significant amount of fairly sophisticated instrumentation, is a move towards more of, a, I don't want to say complete reintegration of science and, and religion. I don't know if that's possible, but certainly more of a synergistic relationship between the two. Is that desirable? Is it even possible given the prejudices that have risen up, I know in, in my own way of looking at the world, I've come to the point where I have maybe not huge problems with religion per se, but certainly huge, huge problems with how humans have taken religion and have used it in such nefarious ways that any positive aspect of it or productive result of it, I think, has been offset by the destructive results of its application and, and its, its use as a scapegoat for irrational behavior. Can you have uh, such a thing as a, a rational, spiritual, scientific, integrated approach, or is that just the equivalent of mental masturbation? No, I don't think that it is. If it is, then apparently I'm a mental masturbator, uh, <laughs> which, which I'll cop to if necessary. It That's a new category. We used to have paranormal investigators, UFO investigators, spiritualists, occultists. Now we have mental masturbators. <laughs> Thank you, Alan, for adding one more name to our lexicon of paranormal You added research. it. I simply agreed with you. But uh, uh, in all seriousness, I identify myself as a scientist scientific illuminist, and uh, that is usually defined, um, and it's Alistair Crowley's term, not mine, um, and although I am not a Crowley worshiper at all, in fact, I find the idea utterly distasteful um, because many of his ideas were utterly distasteful, but it is the aim of religion, the method of science. Now. Let me say a couple of different things, and they'll be, they'll be scattered, but bear with me for a second here. I've spent my entire life thus far, and I don't ever foresee changing that, as a um, an adherent of Reform Judaism, which is sort of the, is to traditional Judaism what the Unitarian Church is to Christianity. It, it's within the fold, but uh, but it certainly doesn't have the, uh, the complex dogmatic approach to belief systems or practices that you find in the uh, more um, uh, traditional bodies. End of that little statement. Second statement, between utterly materialistic intransigent science and fundamentalist religion of whatever particular persuasion, I think mm -hmm. no rapprochement is possible. But most of us, and by us I mean most of the population of the world, is somewhere in the middle on that. They're neither uh, absolute knee-jerk fundamentalist believers in something because nothing is that sure, nor are they absolutely certain of the non-existence of anything other than mechanical, uh, comprehensible uh, mechanism. If one is at neither 
extreme of, of that spectrum, then there is plenty of room for saying the methodology of science can serve us very well. And the aim of religion, that is to link us to the universe in a meaningful way and to give us some sort of a meaningful uh, association with the reality that we find ourselves a part of. If those points seem valid in a general sort of way, I think a rapprochement is not only possible but necessary. It's the next logical and, in a way, ideologically imperative step to be taken. Whether it will be taken or not, I don't know, but I'll tell you what, what it figures into. It figures into the survival of the human race. If we become a totally devoid of spirituality society, the likelihood is we're going to blow ourselves up. If we become a totally fanatical, intolerant society, the likelihood is that we're going to blow ourselves up. Somewhere along the line, there needs to be a give, and that give is not going to come from fundamentalists of either stripe. It's going to come from the rest of us who say, look, we don't know all the answers to what the universe is all about or how to find out what it's all about or even if we, we are able to understand it. But we can at least agree that having a good relationship with the universe and understanding it to the best of our ability with a certain amount of humility and with a certain aversion to hubris is to the good and for the good, both of the individual and of the collectivity of, of humankind. And is this what Ray Palmer meant when he said flying saucers are here to make us think? Yes. Okay, just for our listeners who are wondering what does that mean? And I just opened up a whole new can of worms, but maybe, Alan, you want to briefly explain what I meant by that. Well, oh, gosh, thanks a lot. <laughs> Rick Palmer was, uh, as with most of the, the, the really great thinkers that have existed in ufology past and present, um, unfortunately more in the past than now, Ray Palmer was a person who had his uh, hand in many pots and uh, is very well known in science fiction circles for a certain scandal in the 1940s involving yet another friend of ours, which is at least a four-hour discussion there, Richard Shaver. But he, he was apt to look at UFOs not simply as a question of are these alien vehicles from somewhere else coming here. He wanted to know why they were here, wherever they came from, or whatever they were. Let's assume, for example, that they all turn out to be misidentifications of ordinary phenomena, as the, um, as the Colorado Project and Project Blue Book concluded or seemed to conclude. Still, the phenomenon is there. It's still there uh, 40 years after those uh, studies came to a halt, and clearly people see them and identify them as being something other than that. Why? The question of why comes up, especially if they, they're not real. The question comes up, why do people see them as extraordinary things that are not identifiable? That gets into the question of human nature and what this 
phenomenon is speaking to us. Very little has been done on that. Uh, Carl Jung took a crack at it in the 1950s with a book called A Modern Myth, translated in English as, uh, what did he call it? Um, uh, Flying Saucers of a Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky. But it was a very early attempt, and there has been very little in uh, the way of follow-up. And that book uh, was almost invisible in terms of acceptance. Yeah, well, I, I read it, and I thought, wow, this is on the right track. It's a badly named book, but it's on the right track. The uh, great uh, cognitive pioneer uh, Leon Festinger and Associates uh, did a study called When Prophecy Fails, uh, infiltrating a contact cult that was predicting the end of the world and wanting to know what the contact cult would do when the world failed to end. Well, mm-hmm. of course, they would have not had much to do if the world had ended, so they definitely had a, a good gig there, but they came up with a really interesting book that went into the whole history of prophecies that have failed and what the groups that uh, believed in them uh, do afterward. And uh, I think that was, those were important building blocks. But after that, there's nothing. There's no discussion of the human equation in the UFO phenomenon. Well, let's Why? assume that they are Martians or they are from Betelgeuse or they are from the, the inward depths or they're from hell or they're from heaven or there's something that we can't even even ask anything about. What is the human equation in this? And Ray Palmer looked at that. He looked at it directly and he said, flying saucers, among, among other pithy quotes, flying saucers are to make us think. What if that is actually the closest thing that there is to a purpose involved? What if otherness wants us, in some sense, to have something over the next hill that remains always over the next hill that gives us a reason to climb that hill, that gives us something to quest after, that that in and of itself is reason enough? That's one possibility. Another is that there is a specific answer to the to, to the question, but you have to ask the question first. Well, and you know what? I'm going to ask you something about that. Zeroing in on, on, on the human equation, totally apart from the question of what is the objective truth about this phenomenon. Is that a fair answer? Or? It's a very fair answer, and Palmer, somebody that I talked to several times, and Alan and I and several other people met him once. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, Alan Greenfield, and Jeff Ritzman join us. Now, Jeff, when we're dropping all this stuff about people like Richard Shaver and Ray Palmer, are we 
talking like a couple of old timers, and you're wondering what the heck does he mean? No, no, not at all. I mean, it, all the ideas that have come out of this show are, are really pretty interesting to me so far. I mean, it's Alan is a lot better spoken than I am because I have a hard time putting things into a, into words that people can even get a hold of, which I think is why me and Bendy get along so well. <laughs> it's because he, oh, he, he gets it. <laughs> <laughs> he gets it, you know. I mean, on sentence, he's like, yeah, this. And I'm like, right, that's it. You know, I mean, I like the whole history of, of UFO research and stuff like that. But, you know, it's in recent years to me, I mean, uh, I look at, you know, people like Valet who have gotten out of it and whatnot. I mean, I have to wonder, like everybody else, why did they get out of it? Did they just become frustrated with it? Or did they become frustrated with the field itself? Like, I've gotten on three occasions now and just walked away from it. Because, I mean, by the same token that we have all these really interesting things to talk about, you know, I think the thing that, that got me the most lately uh, that is kind of aggravating is that when you talk to people about, just for instance, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, and then you put forth any other hypothesis, I mean, name it, whether it's uh, aside from the crypto-terrestrial thing, which, you know, may be a little bit more studyable, people say that when you start talking about dimensional beings or different vibratory beings and stuff like that, immediately they just blow you off and say, well, you know, that's a dead end. You might as well say they're made out of chocolate pudding, like somebody said on the Paracast board. And uh, I think people are missing out in the fact that, you know, you may have to go away from the study of UFOs and focusing so hardcore on the nuts and bolts crap that you need to look at something like that's completely outside of the window of UFO research to maybe take that back and learn something about what's manifesting and why is it manifesting. Why, since you know the modern age of UFOs being, what, 1940-something, why we don't have anything? I mean, nothing. We have nothing. And I, I stress that. I can't stress it enough. We have nothing. It doesn't seem like we're any further along. But you no. know what, Jeff? What you're saying, and I'm not a biologist, guys, but it's almost as if this tendency to take a polar position, it's almost as if it were a, a biological artifact, a, a reaction coming from a bifurcated brain. That, that it, It's almost as if we see everything, in a binary sense, in twos. It's like, okay, either you're liberal uh, or conservative. You're either Republican or Democrat. You're either pro right. or con ETH. You're either interdimensional or extraterrestrial. It's as if everything comes down to you have two choices and you must choose one of these two things. And, and I, <laughs> yeah. don't think that's a, I don't think that's an accident. I think ultimately it's almost as if that were a byproduct of literally the physiology of our brains, the physiology of our bodies, that everything that we are consists of this sort of a, of a bilateral symmetry and that we're forced into ways of thinking based on, again, just the simple physiological makeup of our, of our bodies. Because right. this is ultimately our vessel. Everything that we perceive, we perceive, you know, you have two eyes and two ears and that's for basically stereo placement of things so that you have directional sense you know we have 
two hands, we have two feet, you know, the, everything about our locomotion is based on a balancing of two feet. We, yeah. you know, two lungs, two fill in the blank. And it's almost right. as if this has forced us, and I know this is a, in some ways, a very simplistic way of boiling this down, but it, it does really seem that this tendency to get polar about things is literally, it's a physiological constraint. I mean, so does that mean that we're, we're sort of cursed by this bilateral symmetry that makes us who we are? It's called I mean, the bicameral yeah. mind, and uh, it's yeah. uh, produced some very interesting things. In logic, however, it's referred to as a false dichotomy. Of course, sometimes things are divided into yes, no, and uh, on and off as well, sure, the, the sure, basis sure. for for. Com- for computing and for teaching, <laughs> but but it's not the basis of everything, and you are absolutely correct on this. It is one of the great errors. It may be physiologically based. It may not. It may simply be a, a, a cultural uh, artifact that we tend to reduce things to the the two options. UFOs exist or they don't exist. What if they do and don't? I mean, I can, I'm comfortable with that notion. How many times have I said uh, that? <laughs> um, is there or is there not a God? Yes. <laughs> you know, there is and there is not. Um, actually, there's a very interesting little thing where in the book of Exodus, uh, it's much, much better in Hebrew than in English, but uh, Moses says, well, who do I say sent me? Because he really doesn't want to go back to Egypt. And it's usually translated, I am that I am, which doesn't mean very much. But the Hebrew words are ahia, asher, ahia. And that means something, it's more like a verb than a noun. There's, there's no noun in there, really. It's what is becoming is what is becoming. Say what is becoming has sent you is what it really would translate into, only that doesn't sound very good in King James English, and nobody has so far really translated it like that. The, uh, the Jewish Publication Society wisely left it untranslated. It just says in English letters, Ahia, Asher, Ahia, you figure it out. You know, so so it, 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 it's not like there are easy answers to the great questions. I'm not saying that UFOs per se are one of the great questions, but the range of phenomena, the unknown, the, 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 uh, the apparitions, the, the telepathic experiences, the, uh, the experiences of abduction, the experience of aliens or, or non-human beings appearing, those are part of a great question. Is there otherness here that we have failed to recognize? That is a major question. We're not going to be able to answer that with some kind of simple uh well, yes, and they come from uh, no, yeah. the guys from Venus, you know. I mean, yeah, that, that, yeah. That's, that, that's actually a notion that got caught in the 1950s when it made some kind of sense. Right. And the world has had a, a future shock technological explosion. We have the Hubble satellite pulling in these pictures of the very edge of the, of the universe, the, the visible edge of the universe. And uh, um, when it's working, which it's not right now, courtesy of the current administration in Washington, paid for by the Democratic National Committee. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> the, point, the point is... I see the emails that, now, that, Alan. That, there, is no, there is no... But you see, uh, we can send it to Alan. We don't have to keep those emails in the world. It's his fault. There is no either or involved here. There 
are a multiplicity of possible answers, including the answer that, there, that an answer is not what we should be looking for. Generally, my rule of thumb is if you try to answer a question for a long time and fail to get the answer and you're a reasonably intelligent and industrious person, you're probably asking the wrong question. And that is sort of the basis of the sort of uh, right angles to reality approach to ufology that I take. But I don't expect to get any final answers. What I expect to find out is a better grip on what I'm dealing with than I had before. And that's all I really, really ask for. And I think we can do that, but what we need not to do is to become afraid or despairing or, or, or frustrated at the fact that the great questions don't have easy answers. If they did, we would really live in a very, very boring universe. So yeah. we should uh, count our blessings here. Huh. Well, we at, only at get, the, we're down to five minutes here. Let me tell you that right now, ladies and gentlemen. Do I get to put a plug in for my books? You are going to get plenty Absolutely. of time for a plug. Do it. Plug. Do it right now. Okay, here's my plug. Uh, it's not for the usual books because you can buy those on Amazon or, or wherever, and uh, I haven't been getting royalty checks. <laughs> what do I care? <laughs> Read my UFO books uh, because I like people to learn about it. I'm not getting any money for it, at least not at the moment. I uh, I always have hopes. But it happens that my former publisher um, has relocated to Europe, and in cleaning out their warehouse, they came up with a fairly good number of out-of-print books of mine, mostly dealing with occult subjects, including the tantalizing subject of sexual magic, True Quest for the Holy Grail, mm. uh, a book that was never publicly circulated mm. before, and uh, I have decided to make these books available by direct sales and have been doing rather well with it. But if, you, if you're interested in a copy of something really unusual that will make you think and, uh, and give you some new perspective on things, just go to uh, all small letters, all one words, ahenrygreenfieldconsultants.com, and go to the page where it says, pay here. And <laughs> there isn't any ads, there are no frills, but you won't regret it. And uh, if you're interested in the nature of the books and so forth, my live journal is called Smashing Illusions, and if you'll go to my live journal, it explains in great detail what the books are about. But that's ahenrygreenfield.com, uh, ahenrygreenfieldconsultants.com, one we, word. We one have word. a link, we'll have a link to your site at the Paracast site, so don't worry about it, Alan. If you go to any other page, it's going to have pictures of, of my kids lighting the Hanukkah menorah, but that's okay, too. There's one page in there that's a PayPal link for, for people, and the rest of cool. it's all personal family stuff, but I don't mind people reading about my family, so feel free. Well, that sounds like a compelling content there. I think, uh, I think I'm going to be sending you some money, Alan. I think that's a good possibility. All right, so uh, let's Do you sell also want stuff. books, or are we just giving donations? <laughs> what? No, I want books. Giving the old man. boy some donations, huh? No, no, man, I want some books. No, I'll, I'll buy product. I'll, I'll be randy in it, at least in that way. Tell me to autograph them. I owe you $100,000. <laughs> autograph them however you say. Nice. Nice. So, I mean, ultimately then. Can, may, I, may I say one other thing before Please. we close? This has been a very interesting discussion. We really, the last time we talked, we sort of got into nuts and bolts, one of those things, nuts and bolts versus uh, photography. And the, your, your listeners jump 
my bones on that one the wrong way. Uh, but uh, I, I think these these false dichotomies get get in the way of the kind of discussion we've had tonight, and I am very excited about it. I feel like we have gotten into the real substance of what the right way to approach this is, which is with open-ended questions and not sort of pre-existing assumptions about the way things operate and the way the universe is. Mm-hmm. Alan Greenfield will never to. give you the reader's digest version. Well, yeah. that's good because I, I, we don't. We don't. Not only do we not want the reader's digest version, version we hate it. And we, <laughs> well, we understand it's of no use. It, it, yeah. it doesn't exist. And you know what? As I've been listening to all of this episode of, as we've been recording it, I'm, I'll go on record here and I'll, I'll say that I think that there's a possibility this might be the best episode of the Paracast we've ever done. Wow. Um, well, I, I really think so. You know, I've got uh, certainly maybe a bit of a skewed perspective on this. People like when the Paracast bashes people. That seems to be a, a position we've taken in this realm where, yeah, we have people on here. Uh, very often we'll talk about an episode the week after and reflect on it because of the fact that we do like to give our guests the, the mic as it were we don't necessarily confront them with everything just because sometimes it just doesn't seem like proper form you know we we do talk about episodes after the fact and we'll, we'll be critical because uh, certainly speaking for myself I think these topics are worth critical thought and criticism here is not something that that is used necessarily to destroy someone but basically to to put things to the hard test and, and you know this is uh, maybe I'm being idealistic in thinking that uh, this show will help anybody get any deeper understanding of any of these topics but uh, the way I see it at this point we've got to try it, it, it's sort of like it, what's happening in the political realm in this country where people just say well this is the way it is what are you going to do and I'm at a point in my life where I'm not willing to buy that anymore it's like well no we have to ask questions. We have to question authority. If we don't, then, you know, it stands to reason that, yes, the saying the unexamined life is not worth living, I think that that's an absolute truth. What is life? It's not about an acquisition of a bunch of material junk. I mean, anybody can do that. The infamous line of Bernstein tells the reporter in Citizen Kane as he's looking at the stock ticker tape coming out, it's not hard to make a lot of money if all you want to do is make a lot of money. If you're a human being that wants to understand what is this story that's playing out? What is the purpose of our lives? I mean, you know, atheists will say, well, this is, we're nothing but a bag of chemistry and uh, you're basically a drug-based computer and, uh, you, you know, your, your imperative is to survive and reproduce. Well, then, in the spirit of what you're saying, let me say that Richard Hall at least used to be a member of the ACLU, which is one of my favorite organizations. Amen. <laughs> yeah, so, so you're giving him some <laughs> Except for the administration, which I think needs to be bashed until this war is over. Thank they, you. they need to be held accountable for their crimes. And that's something that, you know, if you want to talk about fantasies and, and such, then maybe that's a fantasy worth having. But ultimately, I do think this is one of the best episodes of the Paracast we've ever done, if not the best. And Alan and Jeff, I hope that uh, we can continue this conversation. I think that maybe if we talk long enough, we'll get somewhere. And uh, you know, I want to thank both you guys for coming on tonight. Hey, I think this, thank you. Uh, this has just been fantastic. It's been a pleasure, actually. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.